This week on The Vergecast, we talk about all the new laptops at Computex, new chips from Intel and AMD, big WWDC preview, and we figure out what's going on with T-Mobile and Sprint. This on The Vergecast. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of the Verge Podcast Armada. I am Neil Patel, your friend. Dieter Bone is here. We need more uh, synonyms for the, the boat thing. What if we're, what if we're part of a flotilla this week? Oh, flotilla is good. Yeah. That sort of flotilla just suggests to me like a like a bunch of people having a lake party. I'm not sure that's what yeah. a flotilla is, <laughs> but you know, like the the sort of like Lake Michigan flotilla just sounds like. All the people, I don't know. Yeah, did that in Lake Minnetonka. Paul Miller's here. Hello. I love boats also. (laughs) (laughs) For being what is just sort of uncontrovertibly a a boat-themed podcast, we never actually talk about boats. Yeah, there's like lots of boat tech that we could be getting into. So much. One time I made a video about a truck that turned into a boat. Yeah. (laughs) I remember it well. A real high point of the the early Verge. It was from like a military defense contractor. And so they had mm-hmm. an event in D.C., and there was a bunch of, like, very serious sort of military journalists, and they were like, how fast can it go? How many humanitarian missions can mm-hmm. it support? And I was like, can you make it turn into a boat now? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, The Verge has arrived. There's a lot going on this week. A lot of actual tech news, not just stories of boats from the past. Intel did a bunch of stuff. AMD did a bunch of stuff. There's a million wacky laptops to talk about, which I'm super into. WWDC is next week. Dieter tweeted what I think should be his motto, which is a uh, a spicy take, but I believe it, uh, about Marzipan and running iPad apps. There's 5G news floating around in the world, the airwaves, uh, between the, the frequencies of 24 and 39 megahertz now vibrating with the power of 5G in cities around America and in mm-hmm. Europe. There's just a lot going on. We're going to do WTC for a while because there's there's so much to preview. But let's start with laptops because laptops are legitimately – the design of laptops is, is having a moment. Uh, we got an exclusive on a, a wild and wacky Intel – I mean, Paul, keyboard in the front club – I, oh I would say gosh. had its best day ever this week <laughs> with this Intel thing. It rolled into Computex 
like a boss. Yeah. And I'm gonna bring I'm, I'm gonna bring back that phrase because I think it's really apropos of keyboard in the front club right now. <laughs> like a boss. <laughs> there are so many keyboard in the front club devices. So this week, this past week was Computex. This is why all this PC news is happening. And Asus had a thing, the ZenBook Pro Duo or keyboards in the front, and then they just went ham with screens. So between the keyboard and the main display is just another display. Think of it like the touch bar, only gigantic and also useful. Yeah. <laughs> this is the laptop I want. They also made the touchpad screen as well. It's just a big, massive, let's just put an LCD on every possible surface that we can. And I love it. The touchpad is also a screen? It turns into a, a calculator, yeah. Oh, it's like that, like the sort of screen. Like a numpad. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. It's a, it's a numpad. Yeah, so because the touchpad's on the right. This is, I think this is my ideal form factor. Uh, the, my, my worry is that it's going to be a little too heavy. I wouldn't want like the, the beefy 15-inch version, but apparently they're going to come out with a slightly lighter weight 14-inch version. Yeah. I'm sure it's still going to be a little hot uh, and a little heavy, but you it, think? Seems, <laughs> it seems so wonderful. <laughs> uh, and then Intel took that same idea, put a big-ass screen on the deck of your laptop uh, on, between the keyboard and the screen, but they, in their honeycomb glacier concept that Sean got to look at, you can just lift the whole thing up. Like the, the, the screen is one hinge and then the actual screen is another hinge. And so it like, I can't describe it. You just have to go look at the GIF. Like my most retweeted tweet of the week was just the word what next to a picture of this thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's amazing. So my favorite part about this is one, it's, it's Intel, which doesn't yep. make computers of their own. Nope. And so in you watch Sean's video. Sean's video is great. But at some point, he has to like point out that Intel does not actually make computers and doesn't have a supply chain. And he's like, so this middle screen is sourced from the automotive world, which is why it's ugly. And you look at it, you're like, oh, that's the screen out of like a Camry. <laughs> like it's got huge bezels, a little milky looking. Uh, but I, it's great. First of all, the notion that a laptop screen will raise up to be at your eye level so you don't have to mm -hmm. squint down at it is great. Yep. Second, I do just like the idea of having another giant screen. I, yeah. What have we learned from the past decade of technology? People like more and bigger screens. And, and, and I want to point out, you look at this, and it looks like the most impractical thing ever. But take this and take a 15-inch laptop, right? And then put them on two airplane trays side by side and see which one is more usable. I would argue Honeycomb Glacier is more usable in an airplane tray, as ridiculous as that sounds. It, Why? It, it sounds ridiculous because A, it's called Honeycomb Glacier. <laughs> yeah. <Fact. laughs> uh, two, I just, I love the idea of sitting down an airplane, opening your laptop, and then being like, whoop. <laughs> think, think about, think the, the space you have to work with in an airplane. You've got the tray in front of you, right? That's what's going to hold your laptop. Then there's a back wall, which is, yeah. is, is the seat in front of you. And that typically it results in sort of a concave situation. So if the your screen is all the way up against the wall, your screen also needs to be configured concave. But if the screen is pulled forward and then jackknifes up some yeah. ridiculous double hinge configuration, and plus the keyboard's all the way in the front, and I think it's going to work. Paul, that what you just said sounds to me like like the keynote presentation of the keyboard in the front club. Like everyone's in the ballroom and you're like, I'm now, will now present to you incontroversible proof. Yeah. The keyboard should be in the front. You're like, you got slides. 
and everybody's snapping. So is it, wait, hang on. Is the keyboard of the front club like an academic conference? Would it, wouldn't that be like a plenary session? <laughs> you begin. Delegates to your seats. I'm not authorized to explain the actual meeting format. It's just, I like the idea that it, it's a club that meets with ever more convincing yet elaborate justifications for the keyboard in the front. Uh, here's my question about all of these. So, I, I Paul, I support you and your club and, and the charter that you've laid out f- for us, the public. Uh, isn't the whole point of having the keyboard tucked back so you have a palm rest? This is the great myth. Have you ever used what's known as an external keyboard? You just plug it into your computer with USB, right? You yeah. have one of those? Does it have a palm rest? I've never done that on my lap. Having a keyboard without a palm rest on your lap is kind of the worst. And I know this because I have used a keyboard on my lap, the iPad keyboard, and it's kind of the worst. Well, in one of the founding documents of the Keyboard in the Front <laughs> Club, yeah. where I explained why the Zephyrus was a good idea, I pointed out that, especially with a gaming laptop, laptop is a misnomer. You, you, what you have is a portable computer that you mm. will only usefully use on a desk or sometimes maybe on a plane, <laughs> in an airplane, <laughs> <laughs> but never on the lap because it's, it's already too hot to work on your lap and heavy. What you need, Paul, is to put together like one of those like radical group statements from the 70s, like the Port Huron statement. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you constantly make reference to it. Like when we were doing the Port Huron statement, but you need a better name for it. Is that like the cypherpunk manifest? Like you're already kind yeah. of like a big Lebowski character in my personal <laughs> universe. <laughs> like you should have some sort of some sort of weird radical document that you've made at a conference. I will gladly create this radical document for you. <laughs> I will put it a, a week from now. If you go to my personal website slash manifesto.txt, there will be a manifesto there. Wow. But it has to be about keyboards in the front box. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right, Dieter. I'm excited for Dell's XPS 13 2 and one It's basically the nice things about the last XPS 13, but translated to a 2 and one where you can fold the screen around. It has that tiny little itty-bitty webcam, which I think is hilarious. Um, mm. But, like, the big news, and this will, like, get us into chips, is that Intel's trying to basically do Ultrabooks again. And Ultrabooks, you know, like, MacBook Air came out. Everyone's like, what do we do? Intel said, well, meet these specs and then we'll let you call your thing an ultrabook and then your laptop will you know be good and that meant, led to a bunch of really good laptops uh, so they want to do that again but this time they want the focus to be on battery life and you know a few other like you know minimum viable things that you need for a good laptop these days but it's a little bit fuzzier and they have decided at least initially that they're not going to create a brand that they're going to like use to like bequeath the you know honor of being an ultrabook on these new laptops. So it's called Project Athena. Seems like a good idea. Seems like, oh yeah, maybe maybe this next generation of Intel chips is going to be okay and we're going to get a, get a bunch of really good laptops with a really good battery life and I'll go looking for this thing. But maybe Intel chips aren't that good because they they don't want to create a new brand that they're going to use to to push to the next generation of laptops. It's very confusing. Do they have the market power to do this? Yes. What laptop have you even ever considered buying 
in the past three years that doesn't have an Intel chip in it. Like there are some AMD stuff and we're going to get into that in a minute. But like realistically, the mass market for laptops is still Intel. Whether they deserve it or not is a different question. You're absolutely right. But when they did Ultrabooks, when they did Celeron, no, Centrino. Remember Centrino? Oh, God. When Intel just decided that its brand of Wi-Fi was called Centrino and it it just meant that they'd packaged a Wi-Fi chip with the processor. So they, they used to have this like massive leverage over the like Windows laptop space where mm-hmm. in order to get Intel parts, they could just say to you, you have to use this branding, you have to have these garbage stickers. Yep. There was some money that would flow back, and that was because they had the best stuff. Yep. And so Ultrabook, they could just say, here are the specs. Uh, Intel and Microsoft were powerful enough to basically like dictate the specs of every netbook that was ever made. Yeah. Like to the point where I had a macro for when a new random EPC would come out and would just like spit out the specs of of the netbook. Yeah, it was four gigs of RAM. Uh, What was the processor? It was a 1.6 core something, baby core. Yeah. (laughs) Intel baby core processor. Uh, But, you know, it was like that. Oh, Adam. I'm sorry. Adam N10. Remember all those? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Intel used to be able to dictate that. Microsoft used to be able to dictate that. Those days seem to have just sort of like gone by. And so now even if Intel wanted to say, this is Ultrabook 2, this is what it means to be an Ultrabook 2, here are the specs you have to use. I'm just not 100% sure the Dells and HPs of the world would go along. Certainly Microsoft, which makes Surface products, wouldn't go along. They're just going to do whatever they want. They have all the leverage they need. It just seems like they've lost that moment. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, they're failing. They did give Sean a statement saying that we do plan, we do, we we do have plans to help consumers identify these laptops. We're just not like it'll be next year or the year after, which great. My theory is that this is Intel's last stand or, or their last hurrah. This is their last good times because ARM was at Computex with Lenovo showing a prototype of an ARM laptop, right? And Apple is supposedly working on ARM laptops and stuff like that. But ARM is not quite as fast as Intel's upcoming crop of new 10 nanometer laptop chips that are targeted this exactly this kind of device, this lower power, like the MacBook style, and then maybe eventually slightly more powerful laptops. Um, And then AMD is super focused on desktop and server. So Intel, while they are going to I think totally going to be losing in the low end and in the desktop and server very soon. I think they're the only game in town for this, basically for the Ultrabook. Anything that is a, a relatively performant Ultrabook or a very performant Ultrabook, basically. That, that window <laughs> is Intel's sweet spot. And I think, and that's the, as far as I know, those are the only 10 nanometer chips Intel is currently working on or currently producing, and might be the only 10 nanometer chips Intel ever makes. Right, because they're still working on 7. They're, they've got to work on 7. AMD's already on 7. ARM is already on 7. So Intel needs to, to skate to where the puck is going. The only 10 nanometer chips they've managed to build are these ones specifically for very portable laptops. And so I feel like those are going to be good. I just think it's a very small sliver of the market that Intel will have. Well, it's a very small sliver of like a product line, but yeah. it's a huge sliver of the market. Yeah, it is sort of the most the most important laptop right. segment is the one that Intel will be making ten nanometer chips for. So they'll probably do fine. I mean, they're, they're going to sell a lot of chips there, probably. But I think the question is, will ARM chips ramp up and take that over 
will AMD chips continue to ramp and provide way more power at lower thermals because now they're seven nanometer. We should actually talk about the AMD chips. You want to walk us through those? Yeah, so AMD announced new uh, Ryzen chips and this is the third generation of Ryzen. And I mean, we have AMD's word to go on right now, right? I mean, basically the premise is tons of cores, cores for everybody, pretty good clock speed, amazing power draw and really good price. So what you're looking at is a high-end chip from AMD is about half the power draw of the high-end chip from Intel and about half the price. <laughs> That's what we're looking at, right? That is the current situation. And so again, you know, these are AMD's words. There could be problems. I, I forget which Ryzen rollout was like kind of buggy, you know? So it's not like, the, it's, it's not one, but according to what AMD is saying that they have on offer, and according to what we know about Intel's roadmap, AMD is going to destroy Intel in the like enthusiast desktop space and probably pretty soon in the server space. So I want to believe that, but it's also like, how well is AMD doing right now? And has it been a story for quite a while that like, yeah, AMD is making something better, but there's a couple of things that hold us back. So people are just going to default to Intel again. Like this time around, I'm like, oh yeah, they got it. And it's like, but I've been wrong about that so many times before. I felt exactly the same. So I watched a lot of YouTube and everybody <laughs> seems to be saying the exact same thing. And again, it, you know, and, and maybe it's just like people like hoping, you know, hoping that Intel will be taken down a notch, you know? Yeah. You know, but pe people are saying even if Intel goes back to its old dirty tricks of like bribing companies to use their chips instead of AMD chips, yeah, like even if AMD or Intel goes back to full anti-competitive, like in the server space, you know, if if the power consumption is literally half or something like it, you couldn't even be paid to take Intel chips, yeah, because because you're not you're not going to save money in the long term. So maybe what AMD needs to do is just launch like a massive marketing campaign, and they could like. They could save some money if they went with like a like if they went with Game of Thrones, like that that show's over, right? They just copy they an save, old marketing campaign. No, that they could go with Game of Thrones, they put that next to their their new chips, and uh, you know, like they'd be like, it's the king of chips, you know, just like the king of Westeros, you know. So it'd be like AMD Ryzen brand. I see what you did. I feel like you're Peter. doing a bit, and I'm I am not following the bit. Ryzen no, brand. I followed it, and I reject the conclusion. <laughs> This is how I tweet the puns, by the way. I workshop them. You workshop them here. No, it's yeah. good. If you didn't get it, what Dieter made was a raisin bran pun, which was good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was good. Uh, I'm going to say my suggestion, which is AMD just takes old, successful advertising, licenses it, and then just glues a frame of a Ryzen chip at the end is <laughs> superior. So they're like, where's the beef? And it's just like a picture of a Ryzen chip. <laughs> that would be, I think, very successful. Yeah. The, the, uh, the old McDonald's McD McBLT song, but at the yeah. end, it's a Ryzen chip. It's That's the really iPod good. dancers, yeah. but at the end, it's a Ryzen chip. <laughs> I did want to say, uh, uh, kind of a side note, but uh, one other thing that's coming along with Ryzen Generation 3 is PCIe 4 which is twice as fast as PCI 3, uh, which we've been on for a long time. And also apparently PCIe 5 is like right around the corner. Which <laughs> of course. Added, you know, whatever. Um, but I mean, double the bandwidth between your CPU and your graphics card, that's going to be huge. Also, there's like some bonkers products at Computex where it's like a bunch of 
PCIe SSDs in like RAID array, and it's like 10 gigabytes per second. Yeah. Like, here's my big picture of the stuff at Computex. Do you all remember what happened when Intel's Haswell chip came out, and all of a sudden battery life on like a MacBook Air literally doubled overnight? It just like all of a sudden battery life was great. Yeah. Like when that one chip came out, I feel like we are due for another one of those big step change moments for laptops. And I don't think anything either from AMD or Intel is that moment um, or even the like these prototypes of ARM chips. But you can see how all like, you know, people make an ARM and AMD and Intel all know that they need to have another one of those moments and they're pushing super hard to get there. And like they, their strategy for getting there seems pretty set. And so this stuff is like the best of the like end of the last line, the end of one generation. And I'm, I am waiting for the best of like the new step change generation. That's how I feel about this. Here's my, my fear about that. Cause the step change was now the computer lasts for 14 hours. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that was as well. You went from like five to six hours on a, on a laptop to eight, 12, 14, somewhere in there, depending on. My worry is everyone's like, 14's enough. Now we can save all that power from the CPU and divert it to extra ridiculous screens, which is the other <laughs> thing is that, that is happening at Computex. <laughs> right? They're like, no, 14's enough. What if we add a second screen and it's like you can just see it. I would rather have a laptop with 24-hour battery life. Really? Yeah. Than a second screen. Oh, absolutely. I've been putting together my list of ideal laptop. I've got six hours of active use. That's six hours of active use on a laptop. I'm not a very productive person. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm actually working for more than five hours in a day, I'm going to have like a, a like a breakdown or probably could find a plug, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. My my big thing is I want high performance. I like you know I'm like compiling code. Like it turns out like storage speed and C like raw CPU speed has become like really important to me. But I also don't want a hot laptop because it's the summer. So it's become it's I don't know. It's tough. Well, I, I just so like something that was at Computex. Nvidia is going like directly after MacBook Pro customers with like a, a, a pro line of laptops from a bunch of different partners that have like Quadro five thousand or something like that, like mm -hmm. real GPUs in them. <laughs> but I know they're all going to be too hot. You know what I mean? They're all yeah. going to be like Neil's laptop. <laughs> My laptop is great. The fan isn't on right now. All right. Just give it a couple Correct. minutes, it'll turn on. <laughs> I've had Chrome open for 10 minutes now. It'll Soon it will turn on. Here's my question. So you said that these Ryzen chips will, will probably stake a big claim to the enthusiast market. Yes. Obviously, AMD makes Radeon graphics cards as well. Is there any downside to having an AMD CPU and one of the NVIDIA GPUs that everybody actually wants? Uh, well, that's seen. Now, I don't know much about this, but... Uh, AMD claims with the new Navi GPUs that are coming out that they're also going to be able to be competitive with NVIDIA. And NVIDIA kind of made a, like a misstep. As far as I know, there's not actually any mismatch between using an mm -hmm. Intel CPU and an AMD CPU and then whatever GPU. Uh, it, as far as I know, that is not a, a, a problem that people have. But I do know that a lot of people are pretty dissatisfied with the current generation of NVIDIA because they went hard on 
uh, ray tracing, and that didn't result in a lot of actual day to day benefits for most people. Yeah. So it, it, AMD has a window there. Like they have, it's way way different than the Intel situation, but but they do have a bit of a window this generation. So Navi could be competitive as well, and especially you know AMD has had this sweet spot of being like the the budget enthusiast or whatever. I mean, if they're gonna make every single next gen yeah. console. You know, like they're clearly going to get very good at doing a certain amount of graphics and CPU, you know, that are apparently competent for a next gen console. So why not be competent for, you know, your your next PC? I like the, the budget enthusiast is a magazine because on a newsstand. <laughs> You don't know if it's a magazine for enthusiasts on a budget or people who are just enthusiastic, <laughs> enthusiastic about, about budgets. <laughs> it can really go either way when you're like looking at the grocery store. Is that why they got good? I mean, that, that's kind of my other big step back question. Intel destroyed them for ages. They were not yeah. ultra competitive. NVIDIA really raced ahead on graphics. Their only big win was that Apple just insists on using Radeon graphics cards. <laughs> but is it because they made the game consoles that they were able to like get back into the game in such a big way? I mean, that sounds like a good narrative. There's also the fact that they're not, they don't own the foundries, right? So they don't have to worry about, like they get set of nanometers for free. They didn't right. have to work hard at seven nanometers. They get that for free. According to my YouTube <laughs> Tech. Oh God! <laughs> I just love tech YouTube. I I would I would I'm sorry that I'm not naming names. I just like I watched a lot of them. I don't remember everybody's names. But one thing that they pointed out is Infinity Fabric. So AMD is it has this method of of taking multiple chips basically. Um, like they don't have to hit a bullseye every time when they're making a chip because their Infinity Fabric technology allows them to take different parts of of, of okay chips and put them together and make a good chip. So, so th they do have sort of a somewhat different fundamental technology than Intel is is using, and that let them step ahead. I, that is one theory of what what is helping out AMD get the yields, because obviously it, Intel could make probably a five nanometer chip right now. I don't know, you know, it's it's about how, can you do it at volume? You know, it, Intel's struggling to make fourteen nanometer at volume, or at you know they they've had shortages, um, yeah. and they're really struggling with ten nanometer, and they don't even have seven nanometer yet. So uh, that's one theory why AMD was able to to jump ahead. So just to pull that back for people, it's called Infinity Fab. It's called Infinity Fab. <laughs> Paul definitely just made that up. First of all, uh, <laughs> second of all, no, this is like an interesting. Inter we are always talking about these companies being modular or integrated, or right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. AMD used to be, own a fab. They used to make the chips themselves, like Intel does now. They actually mm -hmm. spun out their fab into a company called Global Foundries. So now AMD, like Apple, like every other ARM vendor, goes to TSMC or Global Foundries to make its chips. So foundries bear the costs of the, the process of going from 10 to 7 or whatever, 14 to 7. And AMD just gets to make the designs and, and print them. Whereas Intel still owns the fab, they're still an integrated company, and for a long time their process technology was far superior. So their designs could have been worse, but they got to the next process technology faster. But now they're right. behind, so we actually, they're just behind. They literally cannot make the chips at the same process size, right? Yeah. Is that the, the summary? I think that's super, it's as nerdy as it gets, but it's super interesting that divesting themselves of what you think the core business is, is what 
potentially helped AMD step ahead. Yeah, it flies in the face of this concept of like a vertically vertical integration being like a like an advantage. I mean, the liability is if let's say someone else makes a really great chip and they have way more demand than you 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 do, unless you have like it all in writing, uh, like unless you have the um, what should we call it capacity at the foundry already bought. You know, you could get superseded by a competitor who's has a better design than you, right? You don't have a God-given right to make your chips anymore. Right. That's what. Li- so it's a liability, but it seems to be totally working out. And it's just really, I mean, we constantly are looking at vertical integration across every part of the industry. Once again, I remind you of AT&T's hit show, Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, but here, it seems like breaking those apart was actually, was actually what enabled competition. Again, competition, the theme of the Vergecast, which I will drag us back to at every opportunity. All right, we're going to take a break. During that break, Paul's going to write the keyboard in the front club manifesto. Uh, That'd be great if our ads this week was just Paul (laughs) quietly (laughs) reading this manifesto for unergonomic laptops. Uh, (laughs) All right, we'll be back, and we're going to go through all all through WWDC. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Okay, we've returned. Next week, my friends, Dieter Bone and I will be in San Jose, California, riveting San Jose, California for Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference. It seems, Dieter, as though this is going to be a massive show. I think it will be, although it's not going to be massive for Apple's biggest selling product, the most successful consumer product of all time, the iPhone. Wait, wait, um, actually, before we get into, can I, can I just yeah. get one actual piece of Apple news out of the way? Oh, yeah. Apple updated the iPod Touch. It now has an iPhone 7 processor. <sighs> That's what it is. Just, I don't know what else to tell you. It's got, a, it's got a headphone jack. It's got a, you know, home button. Yeah. Uh, it really feels like the parts bin of whatever processor they were using, like, ran out. Yeah. And they're like, what's the next worst processor we have? And they just put that one in it. I will say that it is it is the, you know, it's, it's 200 bucks to like get into, you know, get get yourself into the iOS ecosystem. That ain't that ain't bad. 
and they're really thin and cute. I don't know. I'm I'm a fan of the iPod I Touch. I want one. I wish I didn't, but I want one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That was the they news. Should... That's the okay. real news, the Apple news of this week. Now on to uh, WWDC preview. So go on. It's not going to be big for the uh, for iPhone is what you're saying. Well, yeah, they'll. We're expecting some updates to like some core apps. I guess Mail. They're actually like they realize people. There's a they have a Mail client and it should be you know good. Um, is I think the rumor that <laughs> oh they're gonna God. they're gonna do something about that. Who bought and killed Sparrow? I forgot about that until just now. Who killed Sparrow? <laughs> I, think go- I think it was I think it was Google that killed Sparrow, right? I'm sorry. So are you saying Apple hasn't bought and killed any good Mail clients yet? No, not not recently that I can think of. Uh, so. They're gonna, there's going to be dark mode. That's what people will care about, dark mode. Um, but the bigger news to me is coming to Mac and iPad. And I don't know, where do you want to start? I mean, let's just start with Marzipan. So if you haven't been following the saga of Marzipan, give them the sort of TLDR version. So last year, Craig Federighi, software king of Apple, uh, got on stage and put up a slide that said, our macOS and iOS merging. And then he put up a giant slide of like the, the classic Apple keynote smoke flies around when the word hits the ground really hard. No, but they are going to find a way to let you put iPad apps on the Mac and they're going to use UI kit instead of whatever app kit, whatever before. And you're going to be able to check some boxes and do some stuff in your iOS app and then make it available on the Mac. And it was referred to as a multi-year project. And they're like, and the, the great thing is some of the apps we've already shown you today are these great new kinds of apps. Apple won't call them Marzipan apps, but whatever. And they're like, look at these great apps. And the great apps were voice memos, Apple News, Apple Home, and Stocks. And um, these apps are hot garbage. They're super, <laughs> super bad. Like, they're terrible they're terrible because they don't feel like they belong on a Mac. They feel like just iPad apps slapped on a Mac. And if you haven't noticed, the Mac doesn't have a touch screen. And that's really useful for iPad apps. So the assumption is this year they're going to open up development of this this style to like actual third-party developers. And the other assumption is they're going to make creating these apps, you know, good. They're going to make these apps not suck so that they feel like they belong on a Mac. And that's a huge deal because the Mac is not in a cheerful, happy, fun place right now. Like it's super not. The level of enthusiasm for their laptops has just fallen through the floor because they have terrible keyboards. Um, The pace of development of like cool, neat Mac apps has slowed way down. And if not slowed down, there's just less excitement around them. The Mac App Store is um, not a success, so far as I can tell. And so, like, they need to do something because everyone's sort of wondering, does Apple really care about this platform anymore? And Apple's like, we care, we care, we care. And they've shown how much they care by shipping devices with useless keyboards. (laughs) So (laughs) They added a touch bar. (laughs) There's a little baby A-series processor to control the touch bar and encrypt the hard drive now, Dieter. That's how much they care. What do you guys think went wrong with that? Mac App Store because I I feel like I remember when the Mac App Store first came out a bunch of apps came to it pretty quickly and some mm. a, a more followed over like the next six months and I bought a good number of apps in the Mac App Store I kind of liked that like automatic update aspect which was sort of novel at the time uh, but it has felt like it's 
tailed off, and I've definitely seen that like developers sort of oh, it's avoid beyond it, tailed off, avoid it for different reasons. But w- was there an inciting incident, or just like uh, this didn't pan out? Uh, well, maybe we're going to need to get into this now, even though we're still in WWC mode. But to me, the thing that killed the Mac App Store was a bunch of developers that have been making Mac apps for twenty plus years uh, were like, "Okay, cool, we'll give this thing a shot," and they're like, "Oh, this business model sucks. Apple takes, <laughs> you know." 30%. Yep. What? And they allow us to have fewer futures. Yeah. I, I was doing just fine with my website and, you know, paying, you know, random store front to like sell my stuff. And then I, I get a direct relationship with the customers. Uh, so I'm able to email them. Uh, I get the, I get the whole cut of the money. Um, and that just seems nicer. So like, the whole community of people that make stuff for the Mac have not had a gatekeeper that took a charge every time you wanted to pass through the gate before. And so they tried it and they went, well, this is stupid. And they stopped it. They stopped using it. That's my hunch. So I have it. I have it. I can try to synthesize all of this. Yeah. I'm going to try. And I can, okay. I can bring it to Marzipan too so we can carry on. Because we, we do need to talk about Apple's like, we're not anti competitive webpage. But mm-hmm. beyond that, the reason Apple's doing Marzipan and the reason the App Store didn't happen is because the web on a desktop computer is pretty good. Yeah. And so what you can do is you can just package your app as Electron and give it to people or just yep. say, just use this website. And then for the big apps, the creative clouds of the world, you are absolutely not going to give Apple a cut. You're, yeah. you're just not. Like you, you, Adobe has a monopoly there, right? Is is like you can listen to any small like the Pixelmator team is like Adobe. Like pay attention to us. Like you don't need to have Creative Cloud. There's these other options in the world, and Adobe just just keeps rolling, right? Yep. So I I think really what you're seeing, Paul, is the reason Apple's so tightly controlling the iOS App Store is because the second you open up this alternative distribution. People leave. They just leave. They will not use your walled garden. They don't want it. Mm-hmm. And so there's like this fine balance between we need the walled garden to exist because it keeps the majority of users safe. We can scan the app for malware. We can ban apps that are bad actors. All this stuff that is good about a, a semi-controlled platform. But if you don't keep the walls pretty high, people will just abandon you. And the, I think the walls right. on the Mac are just not very high. Right, you can just never use the Mac App Store and get a bunch of apps in your Mac. Yeah. And and I think the primary method that those apps are coming onto the Mac, which is ultimately even more devastating for the Mac than bad keyboards or refusal to put a MagSafe port on it or whatever they're gonna do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, is Electron, right? Is the idea that you're gonna package up web apps and and Slack will never write a single line of objective c code or whatever they need to do they're just gonna like but to finish the thought in order to get an app on the iphone or the ipad they have to write an app that's the only way to do it because getting a web app on those devices is like not great and we are going to see some hopefully pwa stuff i didn't put this in the preview but we are going to hopefully see some better ways to install web apps on ios devices but the bottom line is like Slack and you know whoever whomever else uh, I don't know Delta whoever they have to make a iOS app to like get on that platform and get in that popular store, and if Apple makes it easy for that app that you've already made to just show up on the Mac, then all of a sudden they have convinced a bunch of people to like, you know, stop using Electron apps, and like I think that is 
like Apple doesn't feel like it's maybe an existential threat. But if you're using a bunch of Electron apps, if you're using a bunch of web apps, all of a sudden the barrier to bailing on Apple's bad hardware is much, much lower. Like you, a lot of people I think would be shocked at how easily they could switch over to a Windows machine. Or even and, a Chromebook. Or even a Chromebook and, and not feel huge hiccups. Like I, I, I love my 2015 Mac, <laughs> which is just ridiculously bad in a number of ways. It is yeah. every day slightly more decrepit, but like it's a bunch of Chrome windows. And it's a bunch yeah. of Electron apps. And I could walk away from this thing and I would be sad about Lightroom, but I use Lightroom on my desktop computer like every three days. And I could just like keep my iMac and it would be fine. Yeah. Right. And that I think that's a bigger exist. Like that is the WWDC problem. What are they going to show developers that convinces them that moving their iPad app to the Macintosh is a better strategy than moving their web app to Electron to the Macintosh and every other platform? Yeah. And so this is why Apple needs Marzipan to be great. Uh, these apps have to be very, very good. And, you know, the, the other open question is, like, is this going to be the way to make most apps for the Mac? Um, and that really scares a lot of the Mac faithful. Uh, one, because the Marzipan apps are bad. But two, like, there's a worry that it could dumb down the Mac. If all the Mac apps are just, like, ported over iPad apps, well, yeah. But to me, the second reason to put these iPad apps on the Mac and maybe eventually, you know, the iPhone versions if they really want to, isn't just to like bring some vibrancy back to the Mac. Mac users are more demanding of apps and, you know, programs. We used to call them programs uh, than iPad users <laughs> for whatever reason. And so those apps are going to have to professionalize to work well on the Mac and all of the benefits that they're going to put into making their apps feel like they're like pro apps that belong on the Mac is going to redound back to the iPad automatically and maybe the iPad will like manage to get out of the weird zone where like nobody really trusts it to become their only computer unless they are like, you know, some kind of, you know, I don't know, I'm not going to say fanatic, but like true believer in iOS or if they like have very low demands and, um, yeah. you know, they, they, they don't actually need it for like pro level work. Uh, so there's a virtuous cycle that's possible here. I can understand why Apple's so enticed by it, but this very same week, Windows gave up on their virtuous cycle of uh, you know universal Windows apps, like because they, they just failed for different reasons. It it's failed because the they don't thing. have any other platforms to care about. Exactly. Right. Like right. they don't have a phone. They don't. The idea of running universal Windows apps on yep. the Xbox like was a comedy from the start. Yeah. But the the thing with these marzipan apps is that it it takes a step toward this idea of like write once run anywhere, uh, which is what one of the things that makes the web super great. Um, but it's like the things that made other other apps like Java and whatever like really bad and made a whole bunch of apps f work differently and feel you know weird and alien on your computer. And the Mac historically like hasn't had that problem. Um, but I don't think Apple's going to claim that write once and it'll run on all all of our you know, devices and it'll be fine. But it's a step in that direction. And I think there's like, there's reason to, to like feel trepidation about that. Yeah. I mean, I just, my mail client on my Mac is Mailplane, which is a very fancy web browser for Gmail. Yep. That's all. I mean, it, it is all it is. It is fundamentally just a really fancy web browser and it runs one website. And if Apple can just somehow stop that from happening, where 
the best thing about the Mac is that you can write a fancy wrapper for websites on it, then they're in a good place. I just think the gamble here is a gamble that's designed to sort of prop up the iPad at the end of the day. That's what you're describing. That mm-hmm. we'll get better iPad apps out of the deal because you'll be you'll want to use your iOS app to make a Mac app. And then Mac people are so demanding that you'll make that better, and then the iPad will be great. Is like that is one step of circular reasoning too far, right? Probably. Fundamentally, the problem is I, they still haven't really nailed what is different about an iPad from a Mac, right? They they haven't yeah they haven't given the thing enough power in terms of software, not in terms of hardware. They're they're powerful in terms of hardware. They haven't given enough flexibility in terms of software to completely overlap the Mac. Right. So they won't cannibalize it in that direction. But the idea that suddenly, I don't know, Photoshop on the iPad is going to pick up a bunch of Mac stuff, it that seems unlikely. You're probably right. But like on the other hand, like some of the one of the things that we're expecting for iPad is like some kind of new multitasking system, some kind of windowing system, yeah. even if it's like, you know, more, you know, better arbitrary split screens or one app can spawn more than one window. Oh my God! Imagine that. <laughs> um, they need to they need to create all those features for the Mac. So there are things that have to happen in order to make an app feel good on the Mac that are automatically going to work on the iPad. The question is like, how far down the chain of like third party developers will that trend go? But like a bunch of the stuff that we're anticipating is going to happen on the iPad is only going to be made possible because of the changes they were forced to make to iOS app frameworks so that they could work on the Mac. That's really fascinating. Yeah, and there's already, if you follow, like, Steve Trotton-Smith on Twitter, he's posting screenshot after screenshot of him just sort of, like, hacking together iPad apps that work on a Mac. Yeah. And they they don't look terrible. Nope. They look fine. But it, it also just harkens back to, a like, a bygone era where you're like, I need a stopwatch. I will open a separate app on my computer <laughs> to run the, Like, there's just a lot... I, I, I think a lot of assumptions about that style of app development have gone away. They were yeah. they're forced on you on iOS in many ways. Like the best way to do something is to go get a different app and then switch between single tasking views and apps on your phone. That's the way to use iOS. The way I use my laptop is I have 5000 tabs open in one browser and then a couple of like pretty heavyweight programs, Dieter. Right. Floating around. What's interesting is that none of these seem to solve the problem I, f- I feel in computers is the the disjointness of, like, you know, you're talking about these very siloed applications, you know, and it's very difficult in on a mobile device to interoperate between apps and you have sort of a fake file system that you can kind of do stuff with to maybe pass files around. On a desktop, you're more used to using a file system, but on a, a web browser doesn't really know about a file system. So that gets weird. Like, you know, like if you have an image in your browser tab image editor, you know, how are you really going to move that to another app? I, I feel like there's so much work to be done in improving computer use. And and I, I feel like who is doing it? Zero, zero people, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, what, you're, what you're describing is like levels of abstraction. Right, the iPhone is like totally abstracted away from me. Right, like where do where does software come from the iPhone? It comes from the Safari icon or the App Store icon, and that's it. Right, and like those are two slightly overlapping worlds, but like not really. But almost every other part of that computer is abstracted away from you. Then there's the Mac or Windows, where there's like very little abstraction. You can go look at the file system. If you want to like 
dive into the library folder of your computer and delete the kernel. Like you can just do it. Like is that appropriate for most users? It is not, but you can if you want to. And then sort of in the middle, I think is the problem with the iPad is you expect to be able to use it any way you want because it's expensive, especially the iPad Pro, but it operates at that iPhone level of abstraction. And there has to be some middle ground. And I don't, yeah. I just don't think Apple's located that middle ground of abstraction. And I think that's what you're talking about. You can make you can make a computer easier to use without making it fully abstracted away from you. Well, there's like there's the continuum that you're talking about, but there's also like I feel like I'm short a, a hammer. Like I, I I have one too few tools when I'm using both my laptop or an iPad or an iPhone. Like I just like uh, holding things, like I don't know, <laughs> holding <laughs> things. Okay, okay. You know, on the iPhone, you can press the hold, and then the, the all the icons start jiggling around, and you can yeah, yeah. you can rearrange them. But you can also kind of gather them together under under you know, and and as a group, you can basically hold multiple things on one touch and drag. You know, you can't do on a, yeah. that on Android. And I was rearranging my icons the other day and it was really frustrating. I felt like I was lacking a tool. Well, I'm saying in a similar sense, my workflows where I'm moving the same concept or file or idea from application to application, I'm lacking a tool that is some sort of framework to frame and contextualize what I'm doing. Wait, you can... Yeah, Neil is having a thing. Yeah, if you, if you go into jiggle mode, and you hold your finger down on, a, on an app to move it, and you start to drag it a little bit, right? You start to drag it a little bit, and then tap on a second icon, and then all of a sudden oh. you're making a whole big group of icons. I swear to God, like every year somebody writes the article that's like, you never knew you could do this on your iPod, iPhone home screen. And I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. I, I would like, say the other big difference between iOS and the Mac, This is, I, I believe this very sincerely, the other big difference between iOS and the Mac is iOS is an absolute like nightmare of undescribable UI. Yeah. Well, the rumor is they're going to get rid of force touch, 3D touch, deep touch, whatever the, the touch yeah, when yeah. you push uh, hard. Right click. It's called yeah. right click. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's just everywhere. There's like all these ways to use an iPhone that are impossible to discover. Whereas at least with a Mac, you're like, I'm going to click on this and see what happens. Yeah. Oh, yeah, fine. like shake to undo is apparently going away. They're going to give it like a real like button or gesture on the yeah, keyboard. Yeah, you're going to have to ask Siri. You're going to have to ask yeah. Siri. <laughs> this is how they're going to gamify Siri. It's going to be great. We should talk about uh, the other big rumor, the thing that actually will probably steal the show, uh, yeah. which is the Mac Pro. Hey. <laughs> what, there's nothing to say. We know nothing. <laughs> we, we know nothing. Here's what we know. They promised it a, a year and a half ago, maybe two years yeah. ago. They said, we're going to do it, and then they... Had a bunch of journalists out to Cupertino a year-ish ago mm-hmm. and said it's not coming next year. And then now it's the year after that. So now is the time. They right. promised it would be uh, inherently modular. That's a phrase they used. And they promised there would mm-hmm. be a display. And the rumor out of the display is that it's a 6K display. One more K than you thought you needed. Wait, <laughs> are you saying there's a display like it's an iMac or there's a display also? A pro, an external pro display. Because, you know, they partnered with oh. LG. Okay, and that that display just had a, a a number of problems, and I think Apple realized like they hate like working with others. Like their report card from kindergarten was like did not play well with others today, <laughs> and they just they realized they hate it. <laughs> yeah, so they're like we're gonna just make our own display, which makes sense. I mean, they like the iMac display is great. There's no reason mm-hmm. they can't just source more panels and then yeah. put yep. them in a case. Like they, it's a thing yep. they know how to do. But yeah, those are the rumors. 
The weird thing is, not a peep. I mean, screenshots of iOS 13 have leaked. That is unprecedented. There is not a word about this new Mac Pro. So yeah. could, we're all expecting it to happen. There have not been any sort of like, there's not been any expectation setting that you know kind of happens. What if they do the video intro, talk about it? It's not shipping until much later this year because they haven't actually started manufacturing it at scale, and they like maybe have like one prototype under glass, similar to how they introduced the trash can Mac, yeah, uh, uh, you know, five years ago or however long it was. And then it, the video is just Tim Cook walking around the halls of Intel, being like, "Where are the chips?" Because <laughs> I mean, they have to. Presumably, they're going to stick with Intel chips, right? Presumably, and so, I mean that it's the whole first conversation is. Yeah. Intel's got to deliver chips that can run this thing. And then if it's inherently modular, what people want out of Apple is not to be stuck using Radeon graphics. Hey, man. Yep. Hey, man. The, you got this fancy new Ryzen out, July 7th. It's got faster PCIe. If you want modular, you want faster PCIe. I have no idea. I literally have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I feel like if they were going to switch to Ryzen, AMD would have not announced the stuff at Computex, and they would have waited to be like, and now the Mac! Mm. Ryzen. I mean, just imagining Phil Schiller saying the word Ryzen makes makes me sad. Mm. No, AMD would. Okay, imagine this from the perspective of a, a desktop computing enthusiast. <laughs> yeah, a budget enthusiast or a full budget enthusiast? <laughs> I'm saying a, a high to mid range, full price <laughs> gaming and desktop enthusiast. They find out about the new Ryzen. A processor when Apple announces yeah. its new desktop that's computer. That's huge. I don't think that's well. No, I do explode. not think that's a good look. I do not think that's a good look for you, AMD. I would. I'm going to bet you a, a million dollars that whatever this is runs an Intel processor. That's just like where Apple lives. They're going to stick with that company until they shift the whole line to ARM. They're not going to like yeah. switch. Right. That's another big switch. Intel would would be lobbying for that in the background so hard. Like, I don't know, y'all. I I think that. In their heart of hearts, Microsoft probably wanted to ship the Surface Go with an ARM processor. I think they really did. And I think that, like, Intel, like, just like, here, we'll just give you these chips for free. Please keep using <laughs> Intel. Here you go. Yeah. Here's this. Um, okay, so that's uh, – there's a Mac Pro. We're expecting it. Yep. It is remains unclear why it took this long, given what the, the pro market actually wanted out of it. Yeah. It's like two years after they said, okay, we're going to make something amazing. We're going to fix it. Like, we all just want them to ship the cheese grater again, right? Just like ship a big, dumb tower with lots of airspace in it and the end. Make it so you can replace the graphics card and add other cards for your weird I.O. that you have, pro video people. That's all, you, that's all they needed to do. Yeah. So what are they going to do that justifies all the time they've spent? Maybe they're waiting for PCI 4. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they were just like, the PCI 4 is coming. You know, just hang on, Johnny. Yep. Oh, there's one more piece of hardware that's rumored. Yeah. Tiles, like location trackers made by Apple, which is a wild thing for them to do, number one. So I don't know if I really believe that rumor. But number two, the rumor that does seem true is it seems like they're going to combine, like, find my iPhone and find my friends into a single app because, you know, you value your friends about as much as you value your iPhone. <laughs> I was going to say, um, it, could call, it could be called my iPhone is my friend. No, no, it, it, yeah. it's going to be called, so far as we know right now, Find My. <laughs> okay. Like, Find My yeah. dot, dot, dot. It's a generic. Yeah. Okay, I buy it. I mean, it makes sense, but I feel bad for the tile people. Can I give you just a little parent, parent tech 
anecdote real quick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For Christmas, I got my parents tiles because they're always losing their phones or keys, right? But what happens is they forget to use tile for so long that by the time they actually need to use it, you can use the as uh, a tile app. Yeah. Apple has automatically uninstalled the tile <laughs> app. <laughs> so they, it's completely worthless. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Uh, that's neat. It's like a neat thing for Apple to do. It, mm-hmm. Maybe they're, you know, tiled is a cool mesh thing, you know, yeah. where the tracker's Bluetooth. And so if you're like really lost, you can like push the button and every tile owner in the world will like search for your tile. Apple has the scale to make that actually work. So that's cool. Uh, sure. I mean, yeah. it, what do I want from them? I want a huge Mac Pro that looks really cool. Or Bluetooth based mesh internet. <laughs> Bluetooth. Oh my God. <laughs> a space internet. That'll be next year, Paul. Okay, we got to talk about the other big Apple thing that is happening in the world that I think sets the stage for WWC in a really important way, which is, we've already talked about this, they're being sued in the EU by Spotify for anti-competitive behavior. Um, Addy and I talked to the lawyer who's suing them, uh, class action uh, consumer saying app store prices are unfair here. That case is, the Supreme Court said it could continue. It's going back. A lot of anti-competitive noise around the App Store. The executive who used to run the App Store said he was, quote, really worried about uh, anti-competitive behavior from Apple. Yeah, he went on uh, Mark Gurman's podcast over at Bloomberg. This is Phil Shoemaker. He's talking to Gurman. Uh, He said, it's a real thing. The fear was that somebody would come along, a Facebook, a Google, whomever, wipe off and remove all of our items. And that's why like Google Voice clients had a hard time getting through the store. You should go listen to that podcast. It's Mm. great. But this is a guy who ran AppReview. Uh, an important piece of the story that I think got underreported was app review used to be a part of like the iOS development process when Scott Forstall was at Apple and ran iOS. And Forstall's argument to Shoemaker and other was, we should let all these apps in. It will force us to be better and be more competitive. And that has stopped, which I... Wait, can you explain? <sighs> how How is ha- app review part of the development process? So you're going to build a new hook into iOS. You're going to build some new APIs in iOS. You bring in the App Store review team, and they say, "Here's based on our experience, here's how app developers uh, will use it, right? And right. they say, okay, they're going to use this to compete with Apple's built-in apps in this way. And Forstall's approach, mm-hmm. according to Shoemaker on this podcast, was that's good. It will force us to be competitive. But mm-hmm. apparently when Forstall left, that stopped happening. Mm-hmm. So that this is all the background, right? There's this Spotify case in the EU. There's a class action case, the Supreme Court said could go on in this country. There's the guy who ran App Review telling German, of course we were anti-competitive. We were worried that Google would take over the phone, which is basically how my iPhone operates, right? It's a vessel for Google services. Yeah. Apple's response to all this is a web page, which is good. I mean, they're doing the thing that companies do, right? Spotify puts up a web page to say Apple's anti-competitive. Facebook puts up a web page to say that it has competitors. Apple puts up a web page to be like, the App Store is great. 84% of apps are free, blah, 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 blah. And then at the bottom of this web page, and you should go look at it and see if you buy Apple's argument, is the thing that every comp- company that is anti-competitive does is a list of things that Apple believes is competing with it, right? So when Comcast wanted to buy NBC, disclosure, Comcast is a minority investor in Vox Media, which owns The Verge. When Comcast was arguing against net neutrality, disclosure, Comcast, minority investor in Vox Media, which runs Verge. When Comcast was arguing against net neutrality, they would put out these documents and be like, there's so much competition for broadband internet access. And then mm. they would list like Sprint. Yeah. And we'd be like, no, like 
it's not really competition for having like Comcast cable internet because it's it Sprint. Like they find ways to like say competition exists when no rational person would believe competition exists. Mm-hmm. So Apple has this list, which I also think you should all look at. Um, but it's like, you know, here's maps. What are the apps that compete with maps? Okay, well, Google Maps, Waze, which is also owned by Google, City Mapper, maybe, this app called yeah. Maps Me, which is like an offline maps thing people like. Then they're like, messages. What competes with messages? iMessage. Okay, Facebook Messenger, Slack, Snapchat, Viber Messenger. Uh, okay, they didn't put WhatsApp on here. Yeah. Which is a weird oversight. And then they're like, okay, music. Pandora, Spotify, YouTube Music. You're like, you like look at this list. You're like, oh, there's only really one or two big competitors, and they're from the other big companies. Yep. And then you get all the way to like FaceTime. So here's the list of things Apple believes competes with FaceTime. And I really want you, everyone to go look at this. House Party, fun indie startup for teens. Okay, I buy it. Skype, uh, the ex- rigorously maintained Skype application from Microsoft. <laughs> Cisco WebEx meetings. Uh, because everyone enjoys telling grandma's going to WebEx their kid now. <laughs> Horrible. And then Zoom. Zoom is a success, uh, but I don't think any corporation is like deciding between Zoom or FaceTime is their video conferencing solution. So there's that. And then there's also, they have a one for su- things that compete with Safari, which to me is like the worst one. Because yeah. web browsers on the on iOS are not allowed to use a different rendering engine, so these mm-hmm. are all just skins of WebKit. So there's fundamentally Safari with like different skins on them, and that's like DuckDuckGo, Firefox, Chrome, Edge. But like, I guarantee you, the the Mozilla people are not te- do not believe Firefox is competing on an even playing field with Safari and iOS, right? Right. And what can't you do with any of these apps? You can't set them as the default. You can't yeah. set them as the default link handler. They're absolutely on an uneven playing field. Yep. You can't buy things inside of them. You can't buy things inside of them. So this list of apps that Apple says is competitive with it is like, abs- first of all, Cisco WebEx meetings does not compete with FaceTime. I don't know like what they were thinking. Second of all, even the ones that are successful, Spotify is saying, we are not able to compete on we we are not the default music app for our iPhone customers. So that like this I just see this playbook over and over again where they insist there's competition and then you just like look at their evidence of competition. And you're like, this is ridiculous. Can I just say, uh t- yesterday I got in my car, plugged in my iPhone for CarPlay, and it just started playing some Apple music, which is not <laughs> what I wanted it to do, uh, which happens to everybody all the time. And there was a brief like half second of like Man, maybe I should just switch to Apple Music from Spotify because then this will be easier. Like, yeah. It, like, it just happened. I, against my will, I actually want to continue to use Spotify, but it just, bam. Yeah. The default thing is real. Yeah. And, yeah. You can't just switch it. And it, it doesn't seem that hard. The other thing that I think is hilarious about uh, all of these arguments that they make is they, they say that it's not, you know, a monopoly or unfair because developers are, you know, they're free to develop for all sorts of platforms. Not, you know, they can they can go make their money on Roku or, you know, game consoles or whatever. And it's like, man, if your case for you're not a monopoly on the iPhone is that I can make an Xbox indie <laughs> game, <laughs> you, you just aren't making a good argument. You just yeah. are not. That was also, I mean, again, very reminiscent of what Comcast says, very reminiscent of how Facebook describes itself. These are the arguments. Like, I don't want to presume to judge the validity of Apple's specific argument. 
I'm just saying the shape of this argument is the same shape that every accused monopolist makes. They point mm -hmm. to competition and they often have to reach much farther than logic would dictate that you should have to reach, right? So if you ask Samsung, who is competitive with you in phones, they'll be like, Apple, LG, 5,000 Chinese brands, right? Like they will just be Huawei until we, we retconned Huawei out of existence because <laughs> there's these like one-to-one -one substitutes for their products. Yep. Here, it's like these like very far reaches because they're, they're not. And I, I just see that shape kind of often, and particularly now as the antitrust stuff is heating up, you, see, you just see it everywhere. I think at the end of the day, though, the, the real question is like developers aren't happy. Like we're going into the developer conference, and there's not some parade of iOS developers being like everything is great. There's a bunch of really, really super happy, you know, developers who made apps for parents to help, you know, manage their kids' phones. <laughs> they're just, yeah. they're so happy right now. I think Haim's going to have a big piece about them yeah. by the time this podcast comes out. I just want another app store. Here's what I want. One freebie app store. Apple allows, no, that's not really going to work. I want <laughs> F-Droid on iOS and, and only F-Droid. Apple can stop at F-Droid. And, and they could even, like, constrain it. They say, like, all apps on here have to be open source. I don't know. But I just want some escape valve, some that is not, like, enterprise certificates, you know? I feel like yeah. it, they, make, they make some really good stuff. And it's really beautiful. And it's really performant. And it's nice to look at. And, and it's fun to use. And it's very frustrating to be so constrained on a computer and my fundamental thing always comes back to is compute the, the definition of computing is that you can compute all things computable except on an iPhone where you're not you're not allowed to have a different browser engine well so i this to me is like the fundamental question is how much control does this these vendors have and the answer is that we were only really able to democratize computing in this way because the platform vendors exerted some amount of control, right? There's malware distributed on iOS. Apple has a kill switch. There's malware distributed on Android through Play Store. Google has a kill switch. Google Play Protect is like a really big deal. They scan a bunch of apps for malware. The App Store review process, same deal. Apple scans a bunch of malware. They keep scams out of the store. Uh, Josh Hawley, who's a Republican uh, Congress person from Missouri can be like, we don't want loot boxes to exist and they can enforce that law and they can tell the stores that loot boxes are essentially gambling for children. Mm -hmm. I personally want to live in an America where children are addicted to gambling. I think that would be very entertaining. But like, you know, like you can like do these things. You can, you can outlaw a business model and there's some method of control that exists. Yep. Th those are good things, right? Like fundamentally, those are good things. It, it keeps people from having to well, like, Paul, when you get into a modern car, like Ford or Toyota or whoever has, like, abstracted most of that car away from you, right? You, like, you push the pedal mm -hmm. and it goes, and there's you, – you need not know spark plug timing, right? Like, you just don't have to know about it anymore, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to know – the car will often break for you. It will keep you in your lane, you do not. You, when you get into a car crash, you don't have to like reach forward and pull the airbag handle. Like the car is doing a whole bunch of stuff to keep you safe and get you to do what you need to do. 
That's hmm. the metaphor that I think is used most often about the iPhone, which is this is more like a modern car than a vintage car where you, you did have to know that the carburetor might flood. It's not what computers are for me. That's the, that, that's not yeah. the appeal of computer. You know what I mean? Like there, uh, there's a reason I'm a nerd since a kid. And then there's a, it's, there's a possibility that a computer represents, that it can run arbitrary code, and that this cannot. That's a, that's a dangerous argument to make uh, in this particular thing. Like, it matters for you, but then the answer for you is, like, go buy an Android phone, right? Um, it's a dangerous argument to make because then people can say, oh, well, what you want is just things that nerds want. And not everybody – most people aren't, and so it's fine. This thing is fine. The, the stronger case to make is, like, Apple's actually being anti-competitive against not just, you know, oh, man – we're, we're into monopoly stuff now yep. against other businesses. It's not a consumer harm argument. It's it's a like other business harm argument. Um, and if you look at Apple's page, they have this one category of like they've got different types of apps, right? There's like cross-platform and subscription and paid and blah, 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 blah. They have a category they call reader, which is um, apps that people, you know, purchase and they buy stuff off of the iPhone and then they don't have to, Apple doesn't get a commission or a cut when it's used on the iPhone. And in that category, they put Amazon Kindle, Audible, Netflix, and Spotify. And like, this is the category right here that's actually like one of the most contentious categories because yeah. all four of those apps would very much like to tell their customers how to subscribe to their apps inside the app. And maybe mm -hmm. give them an option to do it. And all four of those apps are like having to jump through insane hoops to convert a user into a subscribing customer because they're not allowed to do it in the app or they have to pay and they, they can't. Or they're not allowed to mention the fact that a subscription in the world might exist if they happen to open Safari and do a search. Like they, they can't even do that. You're right that that is a, a, a competitor harm, but that is also directly a consumer harm. Like, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, as a consumer of Audible, uh, the, one of the most frustrating things about using iOS is I get, like, three auto, audiobook credits a month. So I got to buy three bu books. I don't have to. I enjoy <laughs> buying three audiobooks a month. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to use garbage mobile Safari Amazon website to do that uh, when I'm on an iPhone. It's, it's annoying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating. So, one, the problem is how high should the walls be, right? If the walls are too low... No one will use this store. Yeah. And this store is the mechanism of platform control that yep. enables people to basically not be overrun by malware and viruses and stuff. Maybe there right. should be another mechanism, but that's the mechanism we have now. So these stores are good in that sense. The apps are also vetted. Apple can get rid of bad actors, blah, blah, blah. Like the mechanism of control that they have is the store. They believe in that mechanism and lots of other people believe in that mechanism. Yep. Okay. Well, if the walls are too low, no one will use a store, and then no one will use a store in the mechanism. If the walls are too high, it's obviously anti-competitive. I think the argument right now is Apple's walls are clearly too high. It, you as a consumer, as an Audible customer, do not have a way to send Apple a market signal that those walls are too high. This is a, like an obvious – you are not going to switch to Android because it is slightly easier to use Audible. I did actually do that, but yes. <laughs> Just because of Audible or because of all the little cuts? Obviously, it's all the little cuts, of course. So that's it. But like, I think those little cuts are not going to add up to a significant. You're not going to see like the wave of people giving up on the iPhone tomorrow, 
or sales drop or Android sales increase. The little cuts are are the litanies of reasons that any Android user on a forum arguing against an iOS user is going to, you know, it is what yeah. the advocates of the opposing brand are using to argue against your product. Sure. I just, I really think like, like the Kindle is still successful, even though the Kindle app on the iPhone won't let you buy a book, right? It, iBooks did not take over the world, but this one very annoying thing persists. Spotify is more successful than Apple Music, even though they think they're being anti. So it's like finding the harm is really comes down to how high should these walls be? And I, I think all of us are sort of like at the point where we can feel it that these walls are too high. Like, I can't do this stuff that should be very simple. Yeah, you just, you want to feel the sun on your face and the, the walls are just causing shade. And so you just, you're, you're, you're cold. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's just an easier way to think about it than is the App Store a monopoly for iOS users, right? Like, uh, that sort of seems crazy to say. It is true. If you want to participate economically with an iOS user, the App Store is the monopolistic way in which you have to do it. Or yeah. there's Safari. But, like, I mean, that's a sweet solution, Eli, think about it, Safari. Are they going to do PWAs on the iPhone? Well, so that's actually, like, the funny thing is, like, I make a joke, but the, we are expecting more PWA support. And they're maybe down to the point where, like, a, a website could, like, put an install button on their website to, like, make a PWA. Um, the problem is, like, there's a difference between a web app and a progressive web app, a PWA, because, like, you know, it saves more stuff locally. It, like, reveals more of the app only when you need it, so it can stay small, blah, 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 blah. There aren't actually that many, like, PWAs that people use. Like, Twitter's kind of the main one. Um, everything else is kind of just a web app. I made this mistake when I was talking about, like, being able to save Chrome Windows on your Mac. I, like, said they're all PWAs, and really they're not. But it's in theory, like, you can do pretty much most of the stuff that a lot of people want to do inside a Safari rendering engine. So, like, there is a world where Amazon could just pull out of the app store and offer a Kindle web app on the iPhone. And if the experience of like finding it and installing it is good enough, that might be enough for yeah. like a bunch of the stuff that you do. If they, if Safari as like a PWA container is good and fast enough, then maybe that's all you need. And we're, we're back in the world of web OS. Like, so here, here's the one thing you definitely can't do as of today. Uh, you cannot use Spotify and Safari. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> on that, It's true. <laughs> Yep, it's you. They they pulled support for Safari, some Wildvine something. I yeah, because really, what you want is for your web apps to depend on single source proprietary plugins for yeah. DRM. Yeah. Anyhow, a lot. That's that's how I will sum up this section. WWC mm -hmm. is coming up. We're expecting a lot of news. Right, Apple's got four big platforms. We you imagine all of them are going to get mentioned in some way. But I would say Apple's relationships with its developers and its customers right now is at a very tense moment. Yeah. Because what you can do on this platform, how much it should cost and how much Apple should get paid while they are themselves entering into a massive services push that will make them compete with their own developers more than ever uh, is well underway. So a fraught moment. We'll be there next week. Check it out. And now we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and we're not, we're definitely not going to forget Paul's segment. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. 
Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, Paul. Mm-hmm. Every week, my dude. Yep. You do a thing. I it has the same always. name. It's very consistent. <laughs> yeah. It's called ATX more like late TX. So as you are well aware, uh, the, the, the popular form factor uh, for uh, a motherboards is ATX. And there's also like many ATX, micro ATX, but like a typical desktop tower PC has an ATX motherboard in it. Uh-huh. But at Computex, Asus showed off Asus Prime Utopia. Which is a redesign of a motherboard, and it just moves everything around. Uh, so you get more spots to put heat sinks. The graphics are on the back of the motherboard. Um, there, what's really cool is they have mod. It really brings to mind this mythical Mac Pro. Uh, you know, a typical motherboard, like one of the things that's hardwired to a motherboard, are the the I/O ports in the back. Well, here. The I.O. ports are little modular wedges. They each look about the size of like an SD card reader, and they all plug in over PCIe. So mm. you get a little bit of fast PCIe, a, a, a reconfiguring of, you know, one thing about motherboards or about any PC tower anymore is you really don't need to have a bunch of drive bays anymore. Um, so, you know, that seems like layouts can change, but one thing that is happening with the motherboards is, um, like with the new Ryzen motherboards, a lot of them have coolers, not just for the, the CPU and not just for the Ram, but for, um, the, like basically the interconnects. I'm not exactly sure what, but like just the motherboard is doing some pretty fast, crazy stuff. So anyways, yeah. Also, there's a screen that, that apparently can connect <laughs> to the weather the motherboard over Wi-Fi, uh, so you can move your screen around to check on your fan speed. I don't know. Check this out. It's bonkers. Over it Wi-Fi? Never, yeah. Why do you need a wireless connection for a fan speed display inside of your computer case? All right. All right, Eli. Let's say you're rendering, uh, you're baking the lighting for the scene for the next hot video game that you're building, right? Obviously. Uh, yeah. but you, so while the lighting bakes, you want to go make a sandwich, but you want to see <laughs> how hot your computer is getting. So you make sure that your overclocked um, Ryzen 4 processor or whatever yeah. d- doesn't um, start a fire. Okay. And then presumably there's like a like an alarm 
I'm just imagining like a Bluetooth meat thermometer, but for a PC. <laughs> By the way, that, that sandwich uh, would be required. You'd have to make it with rice and bread. <sighs> Dieter, <laughs> I appreciate you, man. <laughs> I do. <laughs> All right, can I just can I say one thing about T-Mobile and Sprint? There's a yes. bunch of 5G stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. Chris Welch tested out Sprint's 5G network, which is launching in Dallas. Tom Warren tested out a 5G network launching in London. It's all happening. But my favorite wireless industry news, I just want to say it real fast because it's so silly. Bloomberg reported the Department of Justice is considering allowing T-Mobile and Sprint to merge on the condition that they put forth a plan to start a fourth wireless carrier that will compete with them, <laughs> which is incredible. Does it have to be like a real plan for a real company? It's as Looney Tunes as it gets. <laughs> I love it. Right? It's like, it's very like Trump administration, out of the box thinking. What is an analogy for this? Well, I just, the, the thinking is very straightforward, right? Mm. We used to have four competitive wireless <laughs> right. companies. I know we don't want to go to three, so we'll let you merge. I've but you seen gotta, Sesame Street. <laughs> we we want to stay at four. <laughs> I just yeah. the anal- I just can't because the easier answer is to just say no, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then Sprint presumably will have to come up with a plan to be right. a fourth wireless carrier, right? But I think they just lost the AT&T Time Warner case. They're a little gun shy. So they don't want to say no and go to court and then, like, be pantsed again because they just lost a big merger case yeah, to a wireless yeah. company. You know, and then, like, John Ledger will be out there being like, <laughs> John Ledger. You know, like, so why not come up with, like, an elaborate scheme that is so onerous that they, they'll just give up? Like, I mean, we will let you merge if you take this BMX bike and do five backflips, <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's where they're at. With this. You can get it, you can merge, but you've got to drive this car up. It would be cool were they to do five backflips. Yeah, <laughs> I would be into that. I mean, it's 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 as it's, so it's just it's just Bloomberg reporting it. You can kind of sketch out how you would do it. Mm. Right. It's like a very complicated trade in like baseball or something. We're like, so we're going to take Sprint Spectrum on these bands and T Mobile Spectrum on this band, and we'll give them a dish network and they're going to start a wireless carrier. And 15 Sprint executives will go over there too. And then there'll be a company, right? Like, sure. They're going to spin off Boost Mobile. We're going to, we're going to give Boost Mobile like 20 bucks. Yeah. They, they can make it in VNO. <laughs> Right, no. but we'll give Boost Mobile some actual spectrum. Okay, so so this this is my question. It, uh, it seems like you couldn't have twenty nationwide carriers uh, because there's not really enough spectrum to go around. And so unless they all Indeed. had Paul, it is true. Spectrum is a sp- scarce resource that needs to be distributed by some central entity. Oh my God! Well, yes, well, this so, is true. <laughs> well, but the situation I want is that use it or lose it. If you're not actively using the the spectrum within a certain geographical area, then everybody can use it. Maybe. Hmm. Wouldn't that be nice? It depends on the time limit. So like Verizon bought a bunch of 700 megahertz spectrum to build LTE, mm-hmm. but they had to like start. So if you gave them 10 years, they probably, they wouldn't have gotten there. L- lose it is not what I, what I, I mean, like actively on an ongoing basis. If you're not using it right now, I can use it. 
if you do start using it, I'll back off. And if I don't back off, then you can send your police that you love so much to arrest all the bad <laughs> yes. people. Nilay Patel, lover of the police. <laughs> oh my God. That's who I am. Uh, yeah, they call me Five O Patel. It's great. It's just like a nickname <laughs> I picked up along the way. Uh, maybe. I I just, we, we, we can't analyze this too much because it is ridiculous. Hang on. Okay. Here's what, here's what happens. You know how Sprint stores like, became Radio Shacks or Radio Shacks became Sprint stores and it was all really mm. sad, but there's a whole bunch of like retail space out there that's mostly been sold off, but some of it's still sitting empty and fallow. There's like a whole bunch of potential Sprint retail stores that could be handed over to another company. T-Mobile doesn't need them, right? So they could, they, they've got that foundation for uh, another wireless company. Um, but, you know, spinning up a new one, getting the spectrum is really hard. Uh, if they spin up an MVNO, everyone will just see through that. What they should do is they should convince Google to spin off Fi. T-Mobile will invest in it. They'll give oh them all of their old stores. And it's just an MVNO for T-Mobile and Sprint anyway. And all of a sudden, the nightmare – and then Google gets – all these customers put Google phones in and customer support. <laughs> no. And the fourth wireless carrier just becomes like the puppet of Google. So we'll have yeah, yeah we'll have Verizon, AT&T, and a Google puppet. Like that that's the nightmare scenario. Oh, there's more. I mean, I can come up with more nightmare scenarios. Okay. <laughs> but that's a good nightmare scenario. I'm into it. I'm down. Yeah. Like like uh, Spectrum Cable becomes a wireless carrier. They're like, oh, my God. Now the yeah. same great service you know and love at home. On the go. Like, just, <laughs> however you want. Uh, look, it, it's, a, it's a nightmare. But uh, at least at this point, it is turning into like a deeply entertaining nightmare. So – if there's one thing the Vergecast is good for, it's locating deeply entertaining nightmares. Deeply entertaining nightmares, yep. All right, we've gone over. Next week is WWDC. Dieter and I will be there. We'll have a podcast the normal time after it, I believe, unless we corral Craig Federighi into a closet, which we probably won't do. But if I see him and I see a microphone, we'll try to put them together. WWDC, it's coming. Live vlog, Monday. It's all happening. Yep. Rock and roll. Paul. Paul. Promo code. Oh my God. We're done. Snip, snip. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.